continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Acts. And we're going to finish chapter 16 today. So this is the first major episode on Paul's second missionary journey with Silas. And last time we saw how he picked up Timothy in Lystra. And this is a significant story for another reason, because this, to the best of our knowledge, and as far as Scripture has revealed, was the first entry of the gospel into Europe. Paul was coming out of what is modern-day Turkey. He was drawing closer and closer to the center of the Roman Empire. Back in Judea, the Roman Empire had a presence, but it was still Jerusalem. It was still Samaria. But as he gets farther and farther away, the empire is going to have much more of a presence because they were dominating not just Judea, but all of Europe at this point, from Greece in the south all the way up to Gaul in the north. But we're going to see that while the tribes were raging against the oppression of Rome, they were blind to who the true oppressor was. Whether these Europeans accepted the pantheon of Rome with Zeus and Minerva and Apollo and all them, or whether they held the false gods of their own, they were all under the domination of the devil and his angels, regardless of what country they belonged to. The prince of the power of the air, as the Bible calls the devil, he's in the business of slavery. He convinces nations to follow after usurping angels, and he brings individual men and women into the bondage of the soul. But while all that was going on in the center of the world at that time, back in a little synagogue in Nazareth, Jesus Christ was preaching the words of the prophet Isaiah and applying them to himself. Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's Luke chapter 4. You remember the story. Jesus came to set the captives free, and he sent out his church to bring that good news to the whole world. The devil makes chains, Jesus breaks chains, right? And in this story today, we're going to see several people who were set free in a few different ways. One is going to be set free from possession. Two are going to be set free from prison. Many more are going to be set free from sin. These missionaries came into Europe not to conquer, but to liberate one soul at a time. And let me ask you here at the beginning, before we get into this, have you found the liberty that only Christ can bring yet? You might not be a slave in chains, like the Jews that got very offended when Jesus implied that they were slaves to sin, but you might be bound to something else. And Christians, you are free. You know you are. But are you living in the daily experience of what you know by faith to be true? As we read the story today, I pray that all of us will be liberated, not just from the sin that holds us captive, but from the fear that intimidates us. The Lord opens the door of the prison, but sometimes we're afraid to walk out. And I think the Lord wants to set us free today. So let's read together the first five verses for today. Acts 16, verses 6 through 10. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. 
And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You'll remember that Paul and Barnabas parted ways at the end of chapter 15 over the inclusion of John Mark, who had abandoned them on the first missionary journey. In the end, Barnabas took Mark and went to Cyprus, while Paul took Silas and went north and east. They were starting at the opposite ends of where their first journey had been. And the purpose of this second journey was to go to the churches that had already been planted and check up on them. Paul and Silas went to Derbe and Iconium and Lystra. Lystra was where they picked up Timothy as a traveling companion. And all these cities are in the region of Galatia. So you read it there that they went through Galatia. The epistle to the Galatians was written to those churches. And Phrygia is farther east. This is probably where they stopped at Antioch in Pisidia, which was another city they visited on their first journey. And it's on the, the end of Galatia, and you start to move into Phrygia. This is as far from home as Paul had gone last time. This was the farthest away he had ever been. And now they're going to exceed the initial mission to check up on the churches and deliver the decision of the council from Acts 15. Now they're going to break new ground. But it says they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach in Asia. Now, Asia here, don't think of the continent as we call it today. We refer to that whole continent as Asia. Asia here was a Roman province adjacent to Galatia. This would be today Western Turkey would be considered Asia. This is where we have cities like Ephesus, Colossae, Laodicea. Paul is going to get here eventually, but at this time, they are prohibited. So they pass through Asia. They don't preach anywhere there. They just pass through, and they come to Mysia, which is on the far western end of that province, and they turn north to go to Bithynia. But again, they were prevented by the Holy Spirit. So what do they do? They decide they're going to go to Troas, and they're going to wait in Troas for instructions. So far, all of Paul's missions work has been done in what is modern-day Turkey and Cyprus, uh, which is its own country now. But they're going to go to Troas, which is on the far western end of what is now Turkey. And this is a port city. It's right where the strait, the Dardanelles, meets the Aegean Sea. From Troas, they could either sail northeast up into the Black Sea, up towards Russia and those countries, or southwest into the Mediterranean. They had no specific instructions from the Lord about where they were to go, so they figured, let's go to Troas. We can get a boat to anywhere from Troas. So we'll just wait there, and then when God says go, we'll go. And this gives us a very important insight into Paul's decision-making process. The Holy Spirit was in charge of Paul's missionary journeys. God had absolute veto power over his travel reservations. We've seen this repeatedly in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit is not a passive presence in the church, but he leads and he guides and he speaks and he even denies permission at times. He's called here the Spirit of Jesus. Very, very important Trinitarian note there that we're just going to mention. And he has very definite ideas about where he wants us to go and what he wants us to do. Paul thought it would be a good idea to plant churches in Asia. And it was a good idea. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Jesus himself is going to send seven letters to seven churches in Asia, some of which were started by Paul. But it was not the right time, nor was it the right time to go to Bithynia. God knew, and Paul listened. Same is true for our lives, isn't it? God has plans for us, 
and it's up to us to find out what they are. Paul did not treat the Lord as a divine rubber stamp for everything he wanted to do. Sometimes there are folks, of course nobody in this room, these lovely people, but we have something we want to do, and so we add that phrase, well, the Lord seems to be leading me to, or God is calling me to, because if you do it that way, nobody can question what you're doing. <laughs> well, hey, God said. Now, if God is calling you, then yes, you're absolutely right, but it's for that very reason that we don't want to abuse that phrase. Just because it's a good idea does not mean it's the will of the Lord. Paul was in submission to God as we should be. Let's just go to Asia, and then, or let's go to Bithynia. Let's finish out this little section of the world. And God says, ah, I don't want you to do that. But Lord, think of all those people. He goes, yeah, I'll, I'll deal with those people. I got something else for you. And they're waiting in Troas. Paul has a vision of a Macedonian man calling and asking for his help. That's about as clear as it's going to get, isn't it? <laughs> so the team decided to go to Macedonia. And very carefully, uh, you should note that in verse 10, the pronouns switch. Did you see that? It goes from they were doing or he was doing to we were doing. And the Lord had called us. Very significant. It is here at some point that Luke, the author of Acts, was picked up as a traveling companion of Paul. This could lead us to conclude that Luke was from Troas. That's very possible. But at the very least, this is the first time we see him in the Bible. As I said, Troas was kind of a port city, so Luke really could have been from anywhere. And some people have suggested that because we know Paul had some medical difficulties and Luke was a physician, that could have been the reason that he came along because Paul needed a doctor to take care of him as he went. It doesn't specify. All it says is that Luke joined them because it's one of what we call the we passages in the book of Acts. They had that vision, Macedonia calling out to them. And, you know, that's interesting, too, because a lot of times the world is not able to admit their own desperation in the light of day. But the Lord hears the soul, right? The Lord knows what the cry really is, and that's what he communicated to Paul. So here they come. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and now Luke. You could hardly ask for a better missions team, could you? <laughs> well, let's keep reading. Let's see what happened. Verses 11 through 15. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So the team catches a boat sailing northwest. They stop halfway across the Aegean Sea at the island of Samothrace, and then they land at Neapolis. So we have a lot of layovers in Atlanta. They had one in Samothrace. And they land at Neapolis. And very significant. The gospel set foot on the shores of Europe for the very first time in that moment. No longer are they in the Roman province of Asia. Now they are in the Roman province of Macedonia, which is part of modern-day Greece. And they travel 10 miles from the shore, 10 miles from Neapolis, to a key city in the area, Philippi. Philippi 
was formerly called Crenides until it was conquered by Philip of Macedon. And he was the father of Alexander the Great. That's why there were a lot of Greek and Roman cities named Philippi or some variation of that because Philip was Alexander's father and so he wanted to honor his father in that way. And it was on the plains south of Philippi that, if you know your Shakespeare, Brutus and Cassius were defeated by Octavian and Mark Antony. That's where that historical battle took place. And then immediately after that, Mark Antony and Octavian had a war. Octavian won out, and he became the first Caesar Augustus, the first emperor of Rome. So there's a storied past to this city. This is where Rome, the Republic, became Rome, the Empire. It also was significant because it had gold, silver, and copper mines. It was a wealthy city. Any city that exports gold is going to be pretty rich, you know. And we can see that because Philippi was a Roman colony. It was not from Rome's original district, but it was a colony. This meant, legally, it had all the same rights and protections as the city of Rome itself. If you were in Philippi, it was supposed to be as if you were living in Rome. They were free from taxes. They were free from any kind of tribute. They were allowed to govern themselves. They didn't have to have a Pontius Pilate overseeing the place. Very Roman city. And we can tell this because there's no synagogue there. Do you see this? Paul and his team always began by preaching in the synagogues first. But here, where are they going? They're going out of the city down to the river. A city at this time needed a minimum of 10 Jewish men, that is 10 Jewish families, in order to have an official synagogue. Otherwise, they would typically go to wherever the water was because there were some rituals that involved ceremonial washing and cleansing. Baptism came out of one of those rituals. John the Baptist took it and made a little more out of it. So they would go to the river. So there's no synagogue in Philippi, so they know, well, let's go down to the river and see if the Jews are there. And this is where they go. It's also possible, as we're going to see later in the story, that there's some anti-Jewish prejudice going on, and that's why the Jews are forced outside of the city for their worship. Keep that in mind as we keep going. But they meet up with these women. Very interesting that he does not mention the men. doesn't say that there were no men there, but it says that the women were the ones who were listening. And he preaches the gospel to them. And there's one woman in particular named Lydia from Thyatira, who responds to the gospel. By the time we get to Revelation chapter 2 and 3, there is a church in Thyatira. So we don't know if Lydia had anything to do with that, but it's very possible. And she was, it says, a seller of purple goods. Purple, that is the dye purple, was very difficult to get back then. It had to be harvested from a certain shellfish called the porphyra. It's actually where we get the word purple. It's derived from porphyra, which is a kind of shellfish. And so it was very expensive. So Thyatira was a wealthy city because they were a major exporter of purple dyes. This is why in all the old movies, the kings and the emperors are always wearing purple robes because it was a status symbol. It's like the Rolex of the day. Look at all that purple dye. That must have cost a fortune. And Lydia seems to be a wealthy woman because she was the one selling the purple. And she was the, the contact, you could say, for the Thyatiran purple industry in Philippi. And it says she was a worshiper of God. This is key, because what it implies is that she was not Jewish, but that she was a worshiper of the Lord, similar to Cornelius. Do you remember from Acts chapter 10? He wasn't Jewish, but he worshiped the Lord. And she responds to the gospel, and her whole household was baptized. And so she invites Paul and his team to come and stay with her in her home. 
And it seems that Lydia was either a widow or perhaps a divorcee or not married because it speaks of her household and that she was the one running the business. This was actually much more common in the Greco-Roman world than you think, especially if you were a Roman citizen. But it was still unusual. So probably she was unmarried for some reason. And she's the first in Philippi to respond to Jesus. She's actually the first European convert that the world knows about. So very significant. And she gives Paul and Silas a place to stay. And because she sold purple for a living, this is probably a much nicer place than Paul, Silas, and his team were accustomed to staying in. So it starts out very well. Just a small little group, but we're already seeing response. But let's see what happens now, verse 16 down to verse 18. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us. There's us again. You see that? Crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So there's an indefinite amount of time here. We don't know how long it was before this happened. And it says it happened for many days. So we don't know how long it continued until uh, Paul decided to do something about it. But Paul and Silas, Luke, Timothy, they were noticed by the Oracle of Philippi, as she would have been called. Every day, as they went down to the place of prayer by the water, she would follow them and prophesy in a loud voice that they were servants of God and brought a message of salvation. Contrary to what you might think, this was not a good thing. <laughs> it says in verse 16 that this girl had a spirit of divination. Now, this is an interpretive translation. What it literally says here is that she had a Pythian spirit. This is Numa. Pythona. Literally, we would translate that a python spirit. You may know this. In Greek and Roman mythology, the python was a monstrous, enormous serpent that lived at Delphi, which is a Greek city, until he was slain by the god Apollo in the legend. But the story goes, the python spirit remained in the earth and would possess women and convulse them, and their eyes would roll back in their heads, and they'd be able to reveal the future. If you've ever read any history or, or mythology or anything like that, a lot of classic literature, will refer to the Delphic Oracle. Have you ever heard of that? That's a reference to this story here, that the Python spirit would inspire these oracles, as they were called. And we discovered some big, large snakes in the jungle, and wow, that's the biggest snake I've ever seen. It's sort of like the python, and that's where that name came from. Very appropriate name, a giant snake that constricts people to death. Appropriate when you're talking about a demon, isn't it? Now, of course, it does not mean that the legend was true, but what it means is that whatever spirit was abusing this girl had probably used that legend to gain entry. Hey, I'm a python spirit. How would you like to be the oracle of Philippi? The stories are true. Yeah, the stories are true. Why don't you let me in and I can, I can make you famous? And not only that, but her masters were using that legend to make money off of her. Now, you got to know this. She would not only have read people's fortunes, you understand. She would have been consulted by pilgrims traveling from far and wide to come and hear the oracle. The governing authorities 
would have consulted her before making an important decision. The generals going into battle would have called for an oracle to come and prophesy how the battle was going to go. She was somebody in this city, and Paul and his team have gotten her attention. But the missionaries, of course, do not need this kind of publicity. Just as Jesus, you remember, would not permit the demons to reveal who he was, but he commanded them to be silent. Paul and Silas don't need the devil's help to get their message out. Not only that, but her message was less helpful than it appears at first glance, actually. She referred to the Most High God. That sounds really good. But you remember, we're in a polytheistic context here. There are countless gods. So when she refers to the Most High God, okay, which one? She's not being specific. I could refer to whatever God you wanted. And while in most translations it says, who proclaim to you the way of salvation, and the Greek original, that's actually indefinite. So she's literally saying, they proclaim to you a way of salvation. Hey, here's a new God and a new way of salvation. Add it to the list. The pantheon, it's, it's a Greek word. Pan means all. Theon comes from the word for God. If you've seen the the architecture there, they'd have these enormous round temples and they would just add new gods. They'd have little holes in, in the spaces for new statues of new gods that they discovered. And she's saying, hey, we got a new one for you guys. It was the enemy's scheme to absorb the message of Jesus into the existing Roman pantheon. And we don't know how long Paul put up with this. It says for many days. I imagine he was thinking to himself, just, I'm not even going to bother. We're going to let this go. Leave it alone. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. I've got these baby Christians over here. We don't need that kind of trouble. But there came a day when he had finally had enough. <laughs> it says he was greatly annoyed. I would imagine so. If every day you're going to church, there's somebody hollering, and the, the stories say that these women would convulse, and like I said, their eyes would roll back in their head, and they'd foam at the mouth, and they'd wail and scream. And I'd like that on the way to church every morning. We're walking in, and there's somebody in the parking lot hollering and shaking and screaming, and yeah, he's annoyed. But there's more to it than that, obviously. That, that word is diapaneomai. It means to be agitated or to be disturbed. It wasn't just that Paul had skipped his coffee this morning, woke up on the wrong side of the bed. I am so not in the mood for you today. He was grieved in his spirit over this whole thing. There's this young girl, and this, this word for young girl is pidaske, and it, it means a young maiden or damsel. You need to think like, 12, 13, 14 years old here. So he's having to watch this poor young girl under the control of a demon. There's this city that has made this possible by giving itself over to idols. There are these masters who are abusing her to make money. I wonder if they approached Paul at any point with some kind of like business proposition. Hey, you're doing some religious stuff. We're in the business of religion ourselves. Maybe we can make a deal. Well, he'd had enough. So he turns on his heel, faces this demon, and commands it to come out of her at once. And the oracle of Philippi was humbled at the name of Jesus Christ. Apollo may have been strong enough to slay the python, but the servant of Jesus just needed to say the word to send that old serpent scuttling off into the grass. Our God is so great. He defeated the great serpent. Yeah, I can tell him to go away, and he goes away in the name of Jesus this is our third encounter with sorcery in the book of Acts. I've actually been, even though I've read it before, surprised at how often the church encountered magicians and sorcerers and fortune tellers and the like. We're going to hit this hard in chapter 19. We saw the Samaritan Simon Magus, remember, in Samaria, chapter 8. 
There was Elymas Bar-Jesus, the advisor to the proconsul in Cyprus in chapter 13. Now here's this girl with the Pythian spirit. Very important for us to affirm again, and I know we know this, but we have to say it. As Bible-believing Christians, we affirm the existence of demons and the reality of demonic possession. I have friends of mine from around the world and even from back home who have experienced this, whether on the side where they've had to cast a demon out of somebody or themselves have been demon-possessed and been delivered from it by the Lord. And the traffic with such evil spirits, whether for power or knowledge, is called magic. And we are expressly forbidden in the Bible to have anything to do with magic. Deuteronomy 18, 14, right before they went into the promised land, the Lord warned the children of Israel. He said, these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. You know, when we have movies or novels today that are going to have magic in it, they usually explain it as some kind of science, right? Oh, there's rules and there's laws and some people are sensitive to it or whatever. But in real life, there is no magic apart from demonic interaction. The Bible makes that very clear. Oh, I just have a gift. No, you don't. You're being deceived. This young girl had opened herself up to a spirit that could reveal the future. Does Satan know the future? No, of course not. But because these fallen angels are operating on a spiritual plane, they are able to predict and manipulate events in such a way that it gives the illusion of spiritual knowledge. You know, if there's a demon over here, he can holler at this one and tell her what's going on over there. It's not that complicated. It's just happening in the spiritual realm, and we don't see it, so it seems like oh, magic. Or a lot of times, the, these fortune tellers and these astrologers, they give something that is so vague it could apply to just about anybody, right? You will have a good day someday soon. <laughs> Thanks. I lo- or I love the ones like, you will have a big surprise. Yes, okay. That could be anything. Like, oh, look, it was real. It came true. It's like, well, did it, though? When the Lord gives prophecies, he gives very specific ones, doesn't he? Here's the place. Here's the date. Here's the name. All that stuff. This young girl, she probably thought that she had been honored to be chosen as the new oracle. And she was making good money for her master, so she probably was treated well. Slaves were not always abused in this time, but it was still no picnic being a slave. But if you've got a gig like this, well, they have a vested interest in making sure you're happy, right? But that's how the devil always deceives people. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen: the devil disguises himself as an angel of light. That's why folks that want to knock on your door and tell you that some angel appeared to some guy and told him that the Bible is incomplete. Well, how do you know that was an angel of light? Well, he looked like one. Yeah, but Satan masquerades as an angel of light. So are you sure about that? That's why we ground our truth in the word of God and what he said. That's why we test all things, right? He disguises himself as an angel of light, but in the end, he only leads people to darkness. Traffic with demons whether it's through drugs. This is, by the way, why the Bible tells you to stay away from that stuff, because you're opening yourself up spiritually and you're not in control of yourself. Altered states of mind, sacrifices, trances, whatever, any such thing to have some kind of altered mind experience, you are opening yourself up to spiritual influence and suggestion. A lot of people have messed with this stuff as a joke, as a means of enlightenment, and they become trapped and tormented by it. I've heard people describe 
that they were involved in astral projection, and they used to have this spirit guide that would show them the mysteries of the universe, but after a time, they found that they couldn't stop. They couldn't stop hearing this voice, and then they didn't want to hear it anymore, but they couldn't get away from it. Or I remember speaking to one guy, he said, I was doing these practices, these religious things that I did in order to hear from this, what I thought was an angel, it was obviously some demon, he said, and I got to the point where I I couldn't stop myself anymore. It was like an addiction. I had to keep going because Satan gets a hold of people and doesn't want to let him go. Mike McIntosh, who's now a, a Calvary Chapel pastor out in San Diego, miraculous testimony. He had gone so far with drugs and weird Eastern practices that he was hearing voices in his head all the time. And they were saying really nice things, right? We're going to show you the light. You're going to find the God within, right? Well, he, long story, he had a, terrifying experience where he lost his mind, thought he had been killed, and he sees these images of these angels that he thought he'd been talking to, and he said, I thought you were going to take me to the light, and he tells the story that they said, we only take men as far as death, that's as far as we go, and the Lord came in and healed him and miraculously turned his life around, and he's preached the gospel around the whole world to, to kings and governors and everything else, and the Lord is totally able to deliver people, but the point is, It's no picnic messing around with this stuff. This young lady was no doubt tormented in her spirit. Not only was she a slave to her physical masters, she was a slave to this spirit that would take control of her body and her voice. Reports from people who have been abused by these spirits have been horrible, persistent nightmares that they'll have. The drive to cut or harm themselves and uncontrollable fits of rage and profanity or an inability to abide any kind of wholesome, godly company or or worship. And what kind of life is that? Stay away from this kind of thing, you guys. I'm not saying that anybody who's ever read their astrology chart is is demon-possessed, you understand. But why do you want to mess around with that stuff? Isn't the Lord enough? Like, forget all that. Isn't the Lord enough? Oh, I need to know. God, God knows. Isn't that enough for you? I need more power in my life. The Lord has given you the power of his Holy Spirit. What do you need this stuff for? And not only that, I should add, we don't need to be afraid of the spiritual hosts of wickedness. The demons ran screaming like little girls from Jesus Christ. Ah, don't hurt me, please. And you bear his name. You're filled with his Holy Spirit. The weakest Christian in the world is stronger than the mightiest demon the enemy can muster because your power is in Jesus, not in you. I'm so weak. Oh, yeah, but he is strong. Remember the song you sang when you were a little kid? Satan has come to bring people into bondage. Our job is to go out and put a stop to that. Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, and the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You're telling me I have to wrestle against demons? Yeah, but Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell, right? Gates don't march on anybody. Gates close when they're afraid that they're going to get attacked. And there's a lot of weird speculation and a lot of weird stuff surrounding the devil and his angels. And people can get a weird fascination with like, how exactly does that work? Who cares? The devil is a defeated foe. And you know what he always tries to do? He always tries to bargain first. Here comes Paul and Silas. We know what they've done. Well, you know what? Let's see if we can get them on the team. Hey, I'll prophesy for you. We can all be on the same team. Nobody has to fight. Why does the devil do that? Because he knows that in a direct confrontation, he loses. 
I can imagine him speaking to some lesser demon. What are you, crazy? You thought you could go up against a Christian openly? We don't do that. We sneak. We lie. We whisper. We manipulate. We don't actually fight. Are you crazy? We'll lose. We're not here to negotiate with him, though. He wants to stand on the gate and say, all right, white flag, let's, let's, let's parlay. Let's have a truce. <laughs> Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail. And as my professor used to say, get out there and kick some gate. I love that. There are people bound up in this stuff, and we are the knights in shining armor come to rescue them. That's what Paul did here for this poor girl. One word. And, and there wasn't some big, long, prolonged ritual he had to go through. He just turned around and said, would you get out of here? And there goes the python, the big, scary, evil python. Good thing. But there will be repercussions to those actions, as you know. Let's read down to verse 24 now, starting verse 19. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, isn't that sick? I don't care that she's been freed from this demon. They just see that they can't make money off it anymore. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, it does not say if it happened this very minute. But whenever the former oracle's owners found out that she was no longer possessed and could no longer divine the future, they were furious. I'm sure that now she was abused and beaten. Owning an oracle was big business, and this meant the end of their lucrative lifestyle. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them into the Agora. Now, if you look this up, archaeologists have actually been able to uncover the ruins of that marketplace. It's not the same one from when Paul and Silas were there, but it was built on the same foundations as renovations and things happened, you understand. And what you had was the big open square, the marketplace, everybody did their business. And then there was an elevated dais where the two judges would have sat, and that's where you went to court. That's where you brought your public cases, was right there in the market. And that was called the Bema Seat. If you're familiar with that, that's where that name comes from. And nearby would have been standing what were called in Latin the lictoriae, the enforcers or the police, it's been translated. These people had a symbol, and their symbol was a bound bundle of sticks, like the rods that they used to beat people with. And out of the top was coming an axe. That's what they would put on their armor and on their flags and things like that. And that symbol, the bound sticks with the axe, was called the fasces in Latin. And that's where would later be derived the term fascist, if you're interested in that. Really kind of a wonderful thing to appropriate for your government, isn't it? Well, Paul and Silas are hauled before this court in public, and the owners of that oracle accuse them of sedition. They don't mention the exorcism. And they do not give them a chance to respond either. They whip the crowd up into a frenzy by stirring up their patriotism. First, they exclude them from the community, right? We're Romans. These are Jews. Remember, there was no large Jewish community here. This was a Roman colony, very proud of its status as part of the empire. We're not like the rest of these cities that have to be governed by Rome. We are Rome. This is where Rome began. Rome had its beginnings here. Secondly, 
They accused them of disturbing the city, probably to whatever preaching Paul had been doing. Maybe Paul had been in that agora before preaching the gospel. Maybe to the disturbance of casting out that demon, who knows. But the crux of it all is that they accused them of advocating un-Roman customs. This was a very common accusation of Jews and Christians in these days. And of course, in later generations, unfortunately. The Jews were suspected because they did not conform to Roman culture. Rome insisted upon assimilation. They didn't want diversity. They didn't believe diversity was their strength back in Rome. Even Cicero, who we look up as this great Roman statesman, so far ahead of his time, he argued that religions that were different from the Roman pantheon should not be allowed. And if they are, they should be kept quiet. For a city like Philippi, deviation from the Roman standard was not only unpatriotic, but it could even jeopardize their status as a colony. If they're letting new religions being practiced, even though Judaism was technically allowed at this time, that would change later, if, if they're letting the old Roman gods be dethroned in their city, then they might end up with taxes and a governor and a garrison of soldiers stationed to watch over them. And not only that, but I mean, come on, Paul and Silas had broken their oracle. <laughs> she was their claim to fame. This is a source of comfort for the people, and the government had prestige. They, they could give credence to the laws they were passing. Well, the oracle said that we should raise taxes, so what do you want me to do, guys? Well, now that python spirit is gone. What else are these Jews coming to do? Now, of course, Paul and Silas were not interested in changing these people's culture or stealing away their patriotic loyalty. They were interested in changing the hearts of the people. And that was only ever going to be by appeal and persuasion, never by force, right? But the crowd didn't care. Even though Paul and Silas were citizens of Rome, they had full rights under the law. The people mobbed them. The lictoriae unbound their fasces, pulled those canes out, and beat the missionaries with rods in the public square. And it says that the mob was helping them. So not only were they being officially beaten with these rods, but the crowds were running up and spitting in their face and punching them and pulling their hair and who knows what else. Blood is flowing. The crowd is shouting for them to be beaten down. Why do the people respond in this way? I think, first of all, there's a spiritual element here, right? The demons in that city just got punched in the nose. <laughs> and so they're whipping up the people in the spirit to put a stop to these men of God. Until Jesus returns to stake his claim on the earth, this world is under the sway of Satan. But there's a second reason here. People become accustomed to the way things are, even if that way is horrible. Do you remember the demon-possessed man that lived in the tombs among the Gerasenes that Jesus saw, how he cast a legion of demons out and they went into the herd of pigs and the pigs ran into the ocean and were drowned. Well, the people there were not happy that Jesus had set this man free. They begged him to leave their region. Similar here. The Philippians were not interested in a God that was stronger than the Python spirit. They just wanted things to stay the way they were. Brothers and sisters, not everyone is going to be happy with you when you try to make a positive change. Have you seen this? When you stop living in depression and sadness and fear, negative all the time, or when you stop engaging in the same sins you used to engage in, you actually can lose friends. Have you found that to be true? There are some people that they only spend time with you because you make them feel better about themselves because they figure, well, my life is messed up, but at least I'm not as bad as her. At least I'm not messed up as this guy. 
Or if you stop doing what they do because you say you want to follow Jesus, the implication there is what you are doing is wrong. Forget it. I don't need that kind of judgment in my life. You ever have somebody say, what are you being so judgmental for? I say, I'm not being judgmental. I'm just saying I'm stopping. It's because they are feeling the conviction and the judgment of the Holy Spirit on their life. There are people who will even come and try to knock you back down. We never really much cared if you went out and got drunk with them before, but now they're going to insist that you come. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. John 3.19 the world is very optimistic. When the light comes, we'll know it. No, you won't, because it did come, and you didn't want anything to do with it. Are you prepared to make the journey alone as a Christian? You need to be. Most people are so dependent upon the ungodly world of darkness that they'll actually resist the kingdom of God. Even at the very end, after the thousand-year reign of Christ, it says that Satan will gather an army that cannot be numbered after living with Jesus as king. They're going to say, we'll rule ourselves. Even if it's a worse world, we'd rather be in charge. And Paul and Silas find themselves in a very short time going from victory over a demon to a bloody beating in an unfair trial. Taken to prison, feet put in the stocks, and left to their misery overnight. But you know the story, don't you? God's not done here. <laughs> Verse 25. About midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. I could preach just that verse. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is the third miraculous jailbreak that we've seen in the book of Acts. One was in chapter 5 when the 12 apostles were released. One was in chapter 12 when Peter was released. And now we have Paul and Silas in the inner prison. They would have had outer prisons where people could have come and visited you and brought you food. It was sort of a public square, kind of a holding area. They took them down into the dungeon. There they are, sitting in that prison, in the dark, locked away until morning. Their feet are in the stocks. It does not say this here, but back then the stocks had various levels that could be used to stretch out a prisoner's legs as a form of torture. It doesn't say that this was happening, but it, it's possible. Their backs had been laid open, and because of the rods, it didn't cut the back usually. So all these welts would have swollen, all the blood would have, uh, would have gathered on their back. It would have been incredibly painful. No treatment, no painkillers, no nothing. Not only that, but they're worried. Where's Timothy? Where's Luke? Are they okay? What about Lydia and the other Christians? What about that poor girl that they cast the demon out of? Where is she? Are they going to be released in the morning? Are they going to be executed in the morning? You can imagine, sleep was out of the question that night. So what do they do? 
They called a lawyer. No. <laughs> they prayed. They prayed and they sang in defiance of the physical darkness, the spiritual darkness they were facing. They sang praise to the Lord. Jesus had said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew 5, 11 through 12, those verses. They did not use their pain as an excuse to indulge their flesh. Well, I have a right to complain. They beat me up and threw me in jail. It's not fair. Is God even good? Come on, Paul. I know, but I, I, just, I just need to vent. They used their pain as an opportunity to exercise joy and faith. And here we go. I don't know if Silas had ever been persecuted before. Paul had. Paul had been stoned in Lystra, you remember. But Silas was just beaten, and Paul said, Hey, Silas, now you get the chance to finally obey Jesus' command to rejoice in the middle of your suffering. And there is no better way to assert your faith in Christ than through psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, right? And notice it says the other prisoners were listening to them. Their prisoners had seen the two of them dragged in, bloody, bruised, placed in the stocks, but now they hear them singing the glories of their God. And it caught their attention. What kind of religion produces men that can endure pain like that with a song on their lips? Do you know that people are listening to you when you go through trials? They're watching you. When you face heartbreak or loss or financial difficulty or sickness, people are watching you to see how you respond. Consider the last trial you've gone through, probably some version of the quarantine for most of us here. If we were to judge only by what you have posted on Facebook, could we tell that you are trusting the Lord to bring you through this? Or only by the conversations you've had with your most intimate friends? Or are you sitting in a dungeon raging at the Philippian government for abusing your rights and beating you without a fair trial? It's not fair. It's not right. There are laws against this sort of thing. They can't do this to us, Silas. Hey, let me out of here. I demand it. I'm a Roman citizen. Don't you know who I am? Or are you weeping at the unfairness of God for permitting you to endure something so hard? Paul and Silas sitting there. It's not fair. It's not right. We're doing what God told us to do. God sent us here. God tricked us. God lied. I'm going home. Mark had the right idea. I'm out of here. Maybe some of us have some repentance to attend to. The way you walk through the fire sends a message to people about the goodness of your God. Have you represented him well? When you post online, I can't stand this. This is the worst thing I've ever seen. I'm so angry. I'm so mad. This is terrible. We're all going to die, whatever. And then five minutes later, God is so good. You know what people are doing? They're saying, you're full of it. If that's your God... Your God is so good, but five minutes ago you were yelling and screaming and frothing at the mouth and hiding in the closet. What is that? Do you have faith or don't you? People have a very strong hypocrite detector. Have you noticed? Very frustrating. I had friends back in school that did not know God and did not care to, but they knew that I was a Christian. So if I stepped out of line, oh man, Tyler, I thought you were a Christian. I thought you were a pastor's kid. They thought it was really funny. I would fall under terrible conviction in the lunchroom. <laughs> Paul and Silas got it. They sang praises to the Lord in anticipation of his action. God hadn't done anything yet. 
but they were expecting him to. And the Lord showed up with a demonstration of his power that Philippi was never going to forget. In the middle of the night, the jail began to rock with a mighty earthquake. The bolts to the doors broke free. The doors swung open. The chains broke and fell off the prisoners. Very specific earthquake, isn't it? I've read some ridiculous commentary where some guy was like, earthquakes were very common in Philippi. I'm like, yeah, earthquakes don't unlock doors. <laughs> Crazy. And the door to the prison was ripped off its hinges, and the way of escape is wide open. The Romans and the Greeks, you know this, they loved omens, right? They loved signs from heaven. Well, here's a sign from heaven for you. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. And from his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked, because he was angry. That's from Psalm 18, and we can't know for sure that Paul and Silas were singing that psalm, but I hope they were, because it sure would have fit that situation. When we call upon the Lord in faith, He hears us and He answers us. If we're engaged in spiritual warfare, and we know we are, praise is that weapon that smashes the darkness. I love this story in 2 Chronicles, when an alliance of Ammonites and Moabites and Edomites marched on Judah, King Jehoshaphat proclaimed a fast, went to the temple to pray, and a prophet revealed, God says that we will win this victory and we're not even going to need to fight. So Jehoshaphat said, that's great, I believe that, but we still should make preparations, we don't want to be foolish. No, he said, oh, that's awesome, put the worship leaders out front. 2 Chronicles 20, verses 21 through 23, when King Jehoshaphat had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army to say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing in praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come against Judah so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. Judah put the worshipers on the front line. And when they show up to the battlefield, all they had to do was collect the spoil. So it became a tax return rather than a battle they had to go fight. Hey, the same is true for you and me, guys. When you place the battle in the hands of the Lord and give Him glory, especially in song, there's something special about that, and especially in the midst of suffering, there's power there. We have no power. So by giving it over to the Lord in faith, you are relying entirely on His strength. That's why we sing together when we come to church, guys. Singing puts the right words in our mouths. It corrects our hearts. It disciplines us to worship even when we don't feel like it. When the kids have been hollering and screaming in the car and pulling hair and you, know, you forgot something at home and you're walking in and you put wrong shoes on your feet and you're angry and you're frustrated and you sit down and we start to sing, the joy of the Lord will be my strength. I guess I better sing. What are you doing? You're teaching yourself that it doesn't matter what's happening, we're going to sing anyway. Singing in worship, it's a testimony to the world. I've heard of people who have been healed just by listening to worship songs from the church. When Moses' arms were raised, Israel had a victory. When his hands went down, Israel was defeated. Don't let your hands droop, Christians. Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
well, I'm not really much of a singer. Well, the good news is the Lord has commanded you, so you don't have to worry about it. The Lord didn't say, all of you good singers, sing out nice and loud. The Lord said, sing to me. You do it out of obedience, not because you sound so great. Well, the jailer sees that the prisons burst open, and he prepares to kill himself. He was responsible to secure those prisoners. The loss of even one would have meant the death sentence for him. That's how they did it back then. So he says, forget it. I'm not going to let them torture me to death. I'm going to go out in my own way. But Paul hollers at him to stop because none of the prisoners have fled. Now, why is that? Probably at the urging of Paul and Silas. They're like, hey, was that your God that did that? It sure was. Okay, what do we do? Well, don't run off because if we run off, then it'll be the death of the jailer. You're the boss, man. They're not trying to get away. They're not trying to shame anybody. They want God to get the glory. So the jailer comes to them and says, all right, what do I got to do to be saved? He had probably heard them preaching at some point. Maybe he had heard the gospel from them as he was dragging them into the jail. Maybe he had heard them singing about salvation. Who knows? Whatever the case, he's ready to do whatever he needs to do to give God the glory so that he can be saved. And Paul makes it real simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Not, oh, we've got an eight-week course, and if at the end of that you feel like you're ready to move. No, believe. That's it. He does, and his whole family is baptized that very night. Midnight baptism. Isn't that cool? They take Paul and Silas home. They tend their wounds. You can imagine the pain from that beating was probably immobilizing at this point. And they feed them. They take care of them. They're not spending the night in jail. They're liberated from their captivity. Worship doesn't just lead to physical deliverance, but spiritual deliverance too. When you give God the glory and you press on in faith, you will see lives transformed around you. The jailer had been listening, so he was familiar with what they were talking about, but he didn't believe. And then when the earthquake came, God showed himself. He knew immediately where to go. When you live lives of praise to the Lord, even in suffering, they might not be ready yet, but they know where to go when things go down. I've had people make fun of me and tease me for being a Christian and all the rest of it. And then one day, somebody takes me by the arm and takes me aside and said, hey, I know you're a Christian. Do you pray for people? Here's what's going on in my life. And you get the chance to share the gospel and pray for people. You've got to maintain that testimony of praise, you guys. The way out of any bondage in life is to worship and praise Christ. Guys, don't define your life by pain. I think we have a tendency to do that sometimes. Say, well, tell me about your life. And you just list all the bad things that have ever happened to you. Life is just one island of disaster after another in a big sea of pain. There are some people, you ever know folks like this? They're not happy unless they're miserable. One bad situation gets resolved, and you just count down until the next one comes. I have a dear friend who I told this to, and he did not appreciate hearing it from me until a few months later he came back and says, you're right. I, I don't know what it is, but folks will do that. They feel like it makes them important maybe because my life is so dramatic. It's like a movie. There's always something going on. When this story arc finishes, we're going to start a new one. That's not how Christians are to live, you guys. In, Christian, in Christ, we go from strength to strength, victory to victory. Is there trouble along the way? Yeah, sure, but we were warned about that. And we were told, don't let the pain and the suffering that's coming change your heart. You let the joy of the Lord be your strength. We're told what to do. Sing out in faith. Give Him glory. There are people in this life who are bound by their hardships and they see no way out. And when you demonstrate that it's possible to walk through suffering and pain with joy in your heart and a song on your lips, you give them hope. Maybe there's something to this Christian thing after all. So, Live out the joy of the Lord. If not for your own sake, at least do it for theirs. It could be somebody's day of salvation.
It was for this guy. Let's bring it to a close now. We'll finish the chapter down to verse 40. But when it was day, this is a really funny story. This is very similar to the book of Esther when Haman gets embarrassed. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, I don't think so. They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. How do you think that went? Hi. <laughs> so good to see you again. And they took them out and asked them to please leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So the police come to escort them out of the city quietly. Seems that they had heard about what happened at the prison. You know those people that cast a demon out of that girl? Yeah, there was an earthquake last night and they were set free from prison. And now the jailer is a Christian and uh, he wants to know what to do with them now. They just want to get it all over quickly. We're just going to sweep this under the rug and pretend it never happened. But Paul is not going to allow himself to be shooed away. He was a Roman citizen, as was Silas. It was illegal for a Roman to be beaten without a fair trial, much as it is illegal for you to be beaten without a fair trial, especially in a colony like Philippi. Remember, this is supposed to be Rome away from Rome. So Paul insists, that was no pun intended. I didn't mean that to rhyme. So Paul insists, he says, hey, this was illegal what you did. So these magistrates can come yourselves and take us away. He's essentially asking for a public apology here. And the government is willing to give one because they realize that they were citizens. Abusing a Roman was a sure way for Rome to take away your privileged status as a colony. And so it's really funny because they were in this big frenzy to defend their privileged status as a colony, and now they've made it worse than ever before. So they come and they try to make nice with the apostles. Was Paul just being petty here? Oh, you're going to come and apologize to me. No, of course not. He was not just upset about the way he was personally treated. This was just par for the course for Paul. This happened everywhere for him. He's trying to establish the credibility of the church there. If he leaves quietly, then you've got this fledgling congregation that's been painted with the brush of sedition and prison. Isn't that the, those are those people where we threw that guy in prison? Whatever happened to that guy? I don't know. Maybe he died in prison. But by securing a public apology, he repairs the reputation of the church so that now they can have a life in Philippi. And not only that, Paul wants to establish the lordship of Jesus. Not only had Jesus defeated the oracle of Philippi, he had rescued his servants from jail by a mighty earthquake. And Paul wants everyone to know it. Satan had been defeated and was trying to hush it up, sweep it under the rug, make himself look tough. Let me save face, please. No, Paul's not going to have it. It says in Colossians 2.15 that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Just as Satan was shamed by the crucifixion. Oh, my big plan. We're going to kill the Messiah. Turns out that was exactly what secured salvation for everybody. And the demonic lords of Philippi were shamed by their abuse of Paul when the Lord stepped in and did a greater miracle because of what they had done to stop him. The church won a great victory. And the victory is this little church founded on sound teaching and miraculous testimony. Later on, when 
Paul's imprisoned in Rome. The Philippian church is going to send Paul financial and moral support. They're one of the only churches that are going to stand with him when he's in prison. And that's what led to the epistle to the Philippians, which is in your Bible today. And we don't know how many people were there. We have Lydia, right? We have the jailer. We now have the former oracle coming to the church. It's quite a crew, isn't it? And it says in verse 40 that they departed, not we. So it's very possible that Luke stayed behind to pastor that church for a little while. We're going to pick him up again in chapter 20 when he's going to start saying we again when Paul starts his third journey and passes through Philippi again. And uh, seems to have done a great job because when Paul writes to the Philippians, he's got nothing negative to say about him. Well, let's wrap it up here. This story, we saw a number of captives set free. A servant girl was set free from the demonic possession. Paul and Silas are set free from prison. Lydia, the jailer, their families, others we can assume, they were set free from the judgment of sin. Satan is a chain maker, but Jesus is a chain breaker. Amen? And that's what you've been sent out to do, to proclaim liberty to the captives. So let me ask you this question today. Who's your master? Who's got you bound There's always false masters that want to try and assert control over us. It could be a person in your life who just dominates and controls every aspect of your life, a friend or boss, whoever. It could be a behavior, right, an addiction to drugs or food or sex or money or whatever. It could be an attitude, anger, passive aggression, whatever it is that just controls the way you live. It's like a bull in a china shop. You can't keep it under control. It's wrecking everything. Or it could be something even more sinister. We don't know who all is watching or listening to this. Are you in the grip of demonic control? Whatever the case is, I have good news. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. He came to liberate captives from whatever oppresses them. He can bring you out of the prison of sin and lead you to the freedom of forgiveness and joy. If you come and believe on Jesus and commit your life to him, he's promised to drive away every other master, and adopt you as his child. He's not going to make a new slave of you. He's going to make you his child. Who gets to tell the son or daughter of God what to do? All right, you, get over here. i got work for you to do. Uh, You can take that up with my dad. (laughs) What about you, Christian? You know all this, but have you been living it? Or have you been reporting for duty every morning to a job that you don't work for anymore? You've got to repent of that. Make another step of faith in submission to Jesus Christ. No Christian is doomed to live in the prison of sin and despair. So turn your heart from that stuff. Turn from fear. Turn to praise. Let the truth of what you know about God shake that foundation and bust you out of there. The door to the prison's open. All you got to do is walk out. This could be your day. It could all be over right now. Whatever you've been dealing with, it could be over today. Because Jesus is a chain breaker, right? He wants to set you free. John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. Nothing and no one on heaven, hell, or earth other than Jesus Christ has any right to your soul. Don't serve any other master. Come to Jesus and be free.